Welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to be here today with Dr. Kat Arney. If you Google Genetics Podcasts, uh, she is the first, if not one of the first, podcasts that come up, unlike ours, which is way down the ranking. So she's the host of Genetics Unzipped, which is a popular genetics podcast. Beyond that, she's a science communicator in genetics and science more generally. Uh, she has a background in developmental biology and did her PhD at the University of Cambridge. I'm really excited to have you on, Kat, and I'm looking forward to talking about all things science communication, genetics. You've interviewed some of the greats over the years, so I think it'll be interesting to really hear some of your perspectives on the most interesting things that have happened over the last decade and also what we have to be excited about for the future. Thank you. And also just interviewed you as well, so, you know... You're, you're in there as well. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> that was not a self-compliment, but uh, it's a good plug for the episode. It's out today, isn't it? Yes, just came out today. So we uh, went to the Festival of Genomics where you and I spoke and talked about involving patients in genomics research, which I think is uh, is such an important thing. That's right. It's something we talk about a lot on the podcast. And so from your personal background, you were at Cancer Research UK for almost 14 years. Before that, were you in research? And how did you get into the world of science communication going from being in the lab to helping the people in the lab get their story out there? So I'm one of these like deeply, deeply nerdy kids. I'm, you know, from year dot was really interested in science and how the world works. I'm, you know, the kind of kid who had a chemistry set and kept snails and really interested in science and technology. But also, so my family isn't particularly sciencey. My mother's side of the family particularly are, are writers my dad's side of the family are musicians and performers. So I've got sort of the creative writing side of me. Right. But what I was interested in was science and particularly biology. So, you know, how does, how does that work? And so I studied science, you know, did all my A-levels in science, went to university to study natural sciences. Uh, and at Cambridge, that's that sort of pick and mix degree. So I did a bit of chemistry, pharmacology, uh, was forced to do some maths, which I deeply disliked cell biology, molecular biology, bit of genetics, bit of a, all of this kind of stuff. And just became absolutely fascinated by the question of how do you go from a cell to a baby? You've got one set of genetic code in a fertilized egg, half from mum, half from dad, and you build an organism. How the bleep does that work? So my PhD was actually in epigenetics. I worked in genomic imprinting. So yeah, I was in uh, epigenetics before it was cool. Yeah, before it was cool. <laughs> like end of the 90s, the, the very like the early acoustic albums of epigenetics. Before now, everyone's all, all about epigenetics. But yeah, I just became really fascinated in how do you turn genes on? How do you turn genes off? How does this work? But it turns out I'm really clumsy and I have a really short attention span. So I'm not really cut out to be a lab scientist. So I did. I did my PhD uh, at the Gurdon Institute with Azim Sarani. He was he was just a wonderful supervisor, but I was not a wonderful PhD student. Uh, <laughs> then for my sins, I went to London to work with Mandy Fisher and did a, another postdoc there. And so that was about 18 months of postdoc. Again, Mandy is just an incredible person, incredible scientist, incredible mentor and really passionate about science communication and some wonderful projects that she's got going on. But, yeah, I was not doing great. At being a scientist um I was not doing great being a scientist there but I was really interested in all the other stuff so I was all the time writing communicating doing schools science things science right. festivals um writing a lot about science for like 
you know, newspapers and things like that, and suddenly realised there was a career there. So then I went to Cancer Research UK and became a science science comms, and I've I've never really looked back. What was uh, what was day to day like at Cancer Research UK? Because it's quite a um, it's a household name in terms of an organisation over here. How much of your work was working with scientists to talk about the latest new discoveries? I mean, when when you were there from, I think it was around 2002 to 2016, there was a huge amount happening in terms of genetics getting into cancer treatment prediction and understanding more about the, you know, the, the underlying causes of cancer. Was that what a lot of your day-to-day was about, kind of getting that clear scientific message out to people? So I was in the science comms team and because I was there for so long, you know, in, in organizations like charities, there's this constant reorganization and change. So I moved through a several different right. sorts of functions, but all the time acting really as a translator. So translating the charity science into English. So whether that was for fundraising teams, the kind of packs that come through the door, or later on then working for helping to set up the science blog, the charity's podcast, which ran for a bit before anyone was listening to podcasts, being a media spokesperson, writing for the website, all that kind of thing. So, but really we were just soaked uh, all the team were scientists so most of us have phds just soaked in the science reading papers constantly talking to scientists going to conferences and that's what i love because i am a big old science nerd i love scientists i love hearing the stories the excitement that how did you do that getting into it what was the idea where did that come from who did this how on earth did you come up with that and then turning it into stories that anyone can read and be excited by that maybe don't come across when you just read the paper so that's a a really really fantastic and incredible job to do what were some of the most exciting or interesting stories or findings that you worked on through that period are there any that stick out well i think the interesting thing is the arc that happened over the time i was there so i started summer 2004 and Round about that time, you know, cancer genetics was, it was the GWAS stuff. You know, so scientists have found another five genes for breast cancer, when in fact they found, you know, five SNPs. Who knows where they are? I mean, for goodness sake, we don't know. Uh, and then going from that era where it's GWAS all the time through to the era of starting to view cancer as a, more as a genetic disease. So big studies like the Metabrick study was a massive thing for us. So that's uh, coming out of the work done at Cambridge by Carlos Caldas, really drilling into what are the genetic profiles of different types of tumour. And you can put them into you know, 10 subtypes of breast cancer. And then, of course, now, uh, well, and then that led into the, OK, let's make buckets of cancer. You know, uh, 10 types of breast cancer, 10 types of bowel cancer, that real stratification. Right. And a different treatment for everyone, right? Exactly. And the sort of the personalized therapy revolution. And then towards the end of my time there, coming into the whole uh, tumor heterogeneity side of things, where everyone's like, right, well, we've personalized this cancer. We know all the shopping list of mutations in it. Target it with this. Oh, crap. Resistance is still there. We're not really making progress. And then you get people like uh, Charlie Swanton and his team at the Crick a lot of people starting to realize the extent of genetic heterogeneity in tumors, the evolutionary capacity of cancer. And like, oh, hell, that's why we can't cure these things. Yeah. So that sweep from, oh, we're just going to find all the genes and then we'll do it. 
And, and that's actually I've, I've been writing a book about that, which is, is coming out in August. That basically traces that sweep of our we're just going to find the genes and then we'll have all the answers to this is an evil, complex, complex evolving system. And just going through that journey at CRUK was amazing. And then thinking, right, you know, how do I synthesize that and tell that as a story has, has been my latest challenge. Yeah. So so what is this current state of play in cancer? And, and maybe you can give some highlights from the book. What have we learned over the past decade or two as we've peeled back the onion from a genetics perspective and what's still very much in the air? <laughs> I always love, what have we just learned? It's like, well, there were people yeah. saying stuff like 30 years ago that no one listened to. Yeah. I think it's becoming more broadly accepted now that the pure precision medicine idea that you'll just find the mutations, target the mutations, you'll treat the cancer. That is completely overly simplistic. And we have to think about resistance trajectories, resistance mechanisms, acknowledging that that's even going to happen. Like a cancer is just going to evolve resistance to your drug. You have to be upfront about it. Right. And drug companies have to be upfront about it. So one of the interesting people I went to talk to was uh, Bob Gattenby at the Moffitt Cancer Institute, who's using evolutionary strategies to treat cancer. So much more of an adaptive, like, what's the cancer doing? What are we going to do? Where's it going? Kind of way of treating it. Right. And his example is looking at the world of ecology. So when you look at something like uh, a new pesticide, every pesticide comes on the market with a resistance management program because right. you know, Interesting. it's going to develop resistance. So what, how do you use this in the most effective way? So you don't just, you know, napalm the whole thing. You, you strategically manage the populations that you've got so that you avoid the emergence of resistance. You know, and we've also seen it in antibiotic resistance as well. You're just killing everything, surefire way of survival of the fittest. Right. You leave behind the, the small set of cells that can survive everything you've thrown at it. Exactly. Like emerging from the toxic swamp, like what doesn't kill it makes it stronger, right? Right. So I think that's starting to really get through, certainly in, in some places. Although it's, it's really weird. I've, I've been so suffused in this world while I've been researching my book. My book's called Rebel Cell. Rebel Cell, right? Yeah. Cancer, Evolution and Science of Life. A great name. So we go all through the journey from like multicellularity through to modern cancer evolutionary studies. And like cancer is a, it's a bug in life. Like if you're going to be multicellular, your cells have rules. There's a society of your tissues and cheats break the rules and they break the rules through mutations and through sort of perturbations in the environment. And that's in all populations, you know, cancer cells, human populations, animals, that's life. And then like evolution is a thing. It's the mechanism that gives us diversity of life on earth. It's the mechanism that makes cancer an absolute bastard to treat once it's got enough genetic diversity. So it's been drawing those parallels and I'm completely in it. And that's all I see. And then I think I'm going to find it a bit weird when I talk to people and they're like, no, you're completely wrong. <laughs> We've got another <laughs> kinase inhibitor. Shut up. So I don't know. It is hard to um, for something that's so vast like cancer to distill all of that information. You probably got a lot over the 14 years you were at Cancer Research UK. And, and did you do a ton of interviews as well with experts for this to get a picture of what is what are the experts um, saying is the current state of the art and where are we where are we going next? 
Yeah, that was really amazing. So uh, talking to people in the UK, um, quite a few people in the US as well. And that is just the best part of it. So obviously, I used to do a lot of that when I was at CRUK. Uh, then my first book, Herding Hemingway's Cats, which came out about four years ago, was sort of my journey to discover how genes work. So I went around the world talking to all these scientists, like, how do genes work? Yep. And they all said to me, well, I don't know, when you find out, let me know. So that that kind of conversation, sitting down, I'm coming with some ideas of what I've thought and what I've squirreled away from all my sources, but really trying to find out, like, what do we know? What do we don't know what are the provocative ideas one of my favorite questions to ask is what's weird yeah and like you know like go home evolution you're drunk kind of weird and with my my first book so it's just generally about mechanisms of genetic regulation under heavy disguise the question that kept coming up was like is there transgenerational inheritance that's right. the weird how does that work we talked about epigenetics earlier, and you've been uh, involved in the field for much longer than it's been a buzzword. And today, there's a huge amount of interest in are the foods we eat, the behaviors we do, changing ourselves on a cellular level. And what you just pointed out, could they affect our children, our children's children? I know there have been a few famous and controversial studies around the Dutch famine and, and a few others. What is the current? I'm just going to pick your brain on the current state of understanding on all these things that I'm curious about. Wow. You can see my face and I'm doing that big kind of... Yeah. It's really tricky because some biological systems where you can look at other organisms, you can look at fruit flies and mice and nematodes and go like, okay, this mechanism is happening. So maybe it's happening in humans. Right. With epigenetic regulation, I think you have to be so careful about that because the mechanisms of epigenetic regulation have diverged because it's, that's how species respond to their environment. So you'd expect them to be much more divergent than the kind of underlying genes that, that kind of keep life trucking along. So, you know, plants are completely weird. Nematodes, worms, you know, C. elegans, they definitely seem to have some kind of transgenerational stuff. Right. Whether the work from Ben Lehner in Barcelona, that's really interesting. He works on the nematode worms, right? Yeah, and he's got like 14 generations of inherited, you know, Lamarckian inheritance. Right. So I think like worms, I mean, it's cool. Um, what I think is really, really dubious and always gets my back up is when you get people going, it's like, yeah, but like, you know, trauma and things that does go down the generations, doesn't it? And like, it's in your genes. It's, it's modifying your genes. No, no, it's not. There's definitely, we do know that there is, developmental programming yep. that happens so if a pregnant woman in a developing fetus you have the eggs of the next generation in the fetus right. if you're a female fetus and, you know pregnant women will adapt and change the resources that are available to their fetus depending on their external circumstances and it's not out of the bounds of ordinary that then that could go to the generation below that because the eggs for the generation below that are inside female fetuses that's just not, I think, too unorthodox. I, d I did make a Radio 4 documentary about this without ever mentioning the word epigenetics. So it's a fascinating challenge. So I think that that kind of developmental programming on a one or two generation level, there will be responses to the environment. That's completely to be expected. Whether it's going any further and what sort of level of information can then get passed on, I, I don't know. Not sure, yeah. Yeah. So the, actually, talk, talking about that developmental programming thing, this is one of the wildest things 
that I discovered that's, that's in the new book about cancer is that when you look at species, like animal species, mammals responding to environmental change, there's a change under starvation conditions. There's a change in the ratio of male to female fetuses and the size of male to female fetuses. Because if your population is under massive nutritional stress, what you want is uh, not too many males because, you know, <laughs> I mean, sorry, guys, but I <laughs> don't need that many males to keep the population <laughs> going. So you want like a couple of like nice, you know, males that are going to survive. So the bigger males, but you have fewer and then you have more female babies, but they're smaller. So it's a way of like generationally allocating your nutritional resources to sort of plan for the you know, ecological shit show that you think your babies are going to be born into on a deep evolutionary level. What's really wild is that there's a woman in Arizona. She's called uh, Kristen Swanson and she studies brain cancers. And she's got this database of thousands of patients with brain tumors. And there's a sex difference. So in the sex of the patient about how their cancer cells respond. So she teamed up with a, another researcher and they started looking at, are there like biological behavioral differences in cancer cells by sex? Right. Because we know that there are ratio differences in, in the incidence of different types of cancer and, and things like that. That's just wild. Our cancer, you know, female cancer cells tend to like, stay where they are male cancer cells tend to go out all over the place like is there some deep biological programming depending on like down at the level of cancer cells is there any understanding to why that is because obviously they have a slightly different genetic program because yeah. the female cancer cells would have two x's and the males would have an x and a y plus i guess there's genetic imprinting yeah. and other sorts of things that could affect it but probably it's a mystery as to why still i would imagine yeah, it's something that I'm fascinated by and it's kind of wild. So I am digging into it. And I think the more that we try and get things like sex disaggregated data, where you do see differences. I mean, the coronavirus thing is, is very interesting. I said the C word. <laughs> but there seems to be a difference in male and female responses. Like, is that an immune thing? Is it just a behavioral thing? Is it females or males are more likely or less likely to be exposed? Is it smoking? I don't know. But you need to gather the data and then try and figure it out. And I think if there's something like right down at the level of how cancer cells are responding, is it hormonal? Right. Is it actually genetic? I think that's, that's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, that's another good point. It could be hormonal or related to the surrounding body in some way, right? That's going to be a challenging one to unpick. So through Genetics Unzipped, which you run for how many years now? Two, three years? Uh, about, about a year and a half for Genetics Unzipped. About a year and a half. You've covered a number of different topics, cancer, epigenetics, new ways of data sharing, like blockchains and all over the map. What's been the most interesting kind of areas for you to learn more about or else areas to keep track of for the future for people? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, the, the blockchain stuff's kind of wild. I think talking to people about the tension between what we could learn with genetic and genomic research, like that now sequencing is so cheap, you can get down to like single cells, you can do single cell epigenome, single cell genomics, single cell transcriptomics, even things like proteomics are starting to get really like quantitative down to that level. The amount of data we can get from people is just incredible. Balancing that against like, this is data from people. Right. How engaged, you've got to engage and involve people if you want samples from them. How much do individuals own that data? How do you balance that tension? 
how do people make their genomes available for research if they want to without or even potentially profit from it like if you've got a particularly interesting genome or even just like I've got a very boring genome I'm your control <laughs> I think that tension of the hunger and the need for as much data as possible like you start to want sleep data or nutritional data you know if someone's got a whole genome and has been using one of those like diet tracking apps for a year and a Fitbit for a year that's incredible phenotypic and genotypic data like can we get that but that's valuable they've spent a lot of time doing that so you know this how do we get the data we need without just basically stripping people of their of their data resource i i think it's an interesting one that, so when to people about that i find that that an interesting question. yeah absolutely episode of your podcast that i was just part of i think goes deep into that topic area. And, and I think it's interesting one. And obviously from what I do, I feel strongly that people should have control of their data and, and be central to the process. I'm interested in your thoughts on maybe not just how it should be, but how you think it might end up. Because I guess the way that I think about it is if we do nothing, our data will probably be swallowed up by all the usual suspects that, you know, the the Googles of the world that are kind of slowly on the march for different kinds of data. And depending on your worldview, some people don't have a problem with that if it's deployed in the right way and shared with science. But I'd be interested in your views on how the world could look in a decade's time if we do some of the right things, what you think the more realistic outcome might be. Yeah, I, what I would like to see is some kind of mechanism where people can maintain ownership of their genome, regardless of whether they want to know what's in it or not. Right. The thing I think is really interesting is that there's this narrative that said about like, well, of course, of course you want to know what's in your genome. Like that's why you'd sign up to something because you want to know. But, you know, if someone, this is something actually maybe the angle that I'm coming from is like, I would like my genome to be used for research. I would like to contribute to the genomics research effort. I'm not particularly bothered about knowing and there's some things I really don't want to know. Right. I did a Radio 4 series about human genes and one of the things that I don't want to know is my APOE status. I actually actively don't want to know it. But this assumption that if you have your genome done, whether that's by a commercial company or a non-commercial company, that you would want to have access to all of it and know about it. I think that's an assumption that needs to be challenged. Interesting. But at the same time, people should absolutely be able to have their genomic data, whether they choose to want to look at it or not, and in what format and in what depth, but should be able to choose who they can then you know, maybe donate it for a charitable research project or sell it to a commercial research project. But on a like, here you go, use it for this. Thank you very much. Now, you know, yep. that's it's for that. And I want it back. Right. In a, in a real dynamic fashion. Exactly. Yeah. Or contribute to like a, a big national project or something like that. So that real like access ownership over your individual genome. The thing I really worry about is as there becomes more data, you end up with the kind of the situation that we've seen in like streaming for service, like streaming TV services. So it's like, well, I, I gave my genome to Netflix. So that means I can't give it to Disney Channel. Like you just end up with right. these silos that will not work with each other, will not talk to each other, will not share their data. And you're like, you're just like fragmenting yeah. data sets because you want ownership. So that's that's what I would worry about, that even if people do own stuff, that there'll be some kind of like, well, exclusive 
exclusivity or if you get it done through us, you can only contribute to projects that are in our, you know, Netflix universe of genomics. So I don't know. Yeah. People listening to that who are like, but we're making the Netflix of genomics. (laughs) No, I think it's a, I mean, it reminds me of for a long time, 23andMe had their connect. I think they called it connect. I'm not sure, but it was a way that you could kind of connect your genome to other sources, but they, I think they stopped it citing potential concerns around people's data being mishandled or misused. And on one hand, I can understand that, but on the other hand, it can be a kind of convenient, uh, it's often a convenient reason that people used to hang on to data. They just say, oh, we can't release it because it's for your own good, rather than just allowing people to make that decision, right? Yeah, I think that's, um, that's kind of naughty. And like people should be able to own their data. I think another really important thing is standardization. So when you go, well, I've had my genome done. So why can't I give it to this project or that project? And you're like, because you've had it done like this. And like, there's a bunch of metadata that's missing. But I don't know enough to know whether there is an organization that would really start to put standards on genomic data sets. Because again, that's something that needs to happen. There, there may well be, I just don't know. Yeah, so there are groups like the one that comes to mind for me is GA4GH, um, Global Alliance for Genomes and Health. So I think the hard thing about this is, you know, just getting everybody to adopt it. And I've heard you and Bernie talk about this before. And he said, it doesn't matter that the standardization is perfect. You know, we're never going to end up on a perfect agreement of the way things should be structured. But as long as everybody agrees on something, then at least we can, we can share data. And I think that's the right way to think about it, coupled with people having control of their own data. That's the kind of philosophy that we apply at Sano, that we should interoperate with everything else and that people should be able to have full control over their data and see where it's, you know, where it's going and where it's not and have control over that. Exactly. And the answer to all these questions about, and that's one of the things that really has always fascinated me, is the black box between genotype and phenotype. How do you take this DNA sequence and turn it into a living being that's going through its life, that's having, you know, responding to its environment, changing in its health status through throughout life, you know, through the life course. That black box, we just fill it with data and start to open it. And I'm incredibly excited that the you know more data sets will start to to open this. But yeah, it's yep. it's got to be done, um, and it's got to be done in the right way. Well, you mentioned um, Alzheimer's status or APOE4, the Alzheimer's risk gene. I'd be interested to dig more into that. I know you just started a, a BBC series. How many, the first one is on Alzheimer's, is that right? What And what else What else are you covering? So this is a, a five-part series. It's called Ingenious. And we're looking at the stories and the science behind five human genes. This has been interesting. It's on Radio 4 this week, live, and then it will be on iPlayer. So we've done five genes. So we've done the, the first one was the ginger gene. Oh, great. I'm MC1R, and you'll notice that I am a heterozygote. This red hair comes out of the bottle. <laughs> but my uh, my mum's a redhead, and I've got the lovely freckles, freckles and pale skin. It marks me out as a MC1R heterozygote. So we cover the ginger gene. We do the breast cancer gene, so that's the BRCA genes. Yep. What the implications of that for families, for cancer prevention, and actually cancer treatment uh, through things like PARP inhibitors. Yesterday was the milkshake gene. So that's lactase persistence. And we look at that in the context of sort of evolution of society from Neolithic farming. And I didn't realize this, like lactase persistence is the single most strongly selected evolutionary trait in the human genome. 
more than anything else. And I've already had hate mail from vegans and people like that going, you're glorifying milk, you're killing people, it's disgusting, you know, it's not a nutritional food. It's like, well, 10,000 years of evolutionary selection says you're wrong. So, like, if it was bad for us, it would not be the single most selected trait in our genome. And then today was the Alzheimer's gene. So that's APOE4. So we we talked to Anna Middleton and her colleagues at the Sanger about like the kind of grappling with the choices about should you be tested? Sometimes people find out their status because they just signed up to like an ancestry test or something like that. What does it mean to to grapple with risk uh, in that way? And then tomorrow is my favorite gene is Sonic Hedgehog. Uh, which is the cyclops gene. So we start with the story of the lambs that were born in Idaho with cyclopia, so just with one eye. And then they discovered that was down to a chemical in the plants that the mothers were eating, interfering with chronic hedgehog regulation. And that's also, it's the gene fault responsible for the six-toed Hemingway cats, which is why my first book's called Herding Hemingway's Cats. And it all sort of, all ties up together. I just love my, ah. I get to, <laughs> I just get to make stuff about genes. It's brilliant. How do you break down, kind of methodologically speaking, some of these really complex concepts and figure out how to bring them across? Because all the ones that you've just named are, you know, from the science that I know about them, there's, you know, you can go into such incredible, gnarly detail. How do you pick out the, you know, what are the important parts to bring to the surface and what's, you know, less important or or more for the enthusiast? So, I mean, I'm a, I'm a storyteller and a writer. So... The first thing is the story. And that's not necessarily like, ooh, what's the showiest story? Have I got a a person or something to build this around? It's like, no, what's the actual narrative structure of this? Where does it start? Where do we go through? Where do we get to the end? And what does it tell us along the way? Beginning, we're here, something happens, what's changed by the end? Like That's a basic narrative structure. And it might be that there is a particular person that follows through that, through your story, or maybe it's a gene, or maybe it's, it's some other kind of theme. And then once you're really clear on that narrative structure, what you're trying to tell someone, that enables you to sort of winnow out what's relevant and what isn't. Right. And it's really hard because there's always like, oh, God, there's this amazing bit. There's this amazing person or amazing story. Or we did this interview with this woman talking about this kingdom in the middle of Africa that was just had all this genetic diversity. And, and like it just doesn't fit. So that has to go. The really tricky job is also then simplifying particularly for the public, is simplifying the science to the point where it's not just banal right. and actually does explain a bit about it. So you can't just go, well, it's a, a thing that sticks to a thing in cancer. It's like, well, what's it, what's it yeah. like doing? I'm an analogy junkie. Like, I love like analogies, metaphors, absolute junkie for them. But the key to a really good sort of explaining metaphor like that is you have to really understand the biology under it. And that's what I absolutely insist on is that I have to understand what's happening at the biological level. Like, is it two proteins interacting? Is it, you know, a negative regulator making some feedback loop? Is this a self-surface thing? Is this like, how are they intersecting? What is this process like Right. at the real level? And then you can step back and go, well, where else in the world is like that? Where else do two things do, do that or something? Interesting. Yeah. So that's how I do it. And it's a really interesting one. I was doing a training course with some scientists and we were trying to do this exercise. And they were talking about like something rising or falling. It's like, well, it's like a cake. It's like a cake. And we dug into it. It's like, it's really not like a cake. (laughs) You're talking about 
something rising and actually what they were working on the skin or some, something like that. And it's like, no, it's like a bubble in wallpaper. Right. That's it. You know, that's what it's like. And they're like, yeah, but it's, it's making it rise. It's like, that's not actually what's happening. Is it? It's like the surface is not fitting right. Yeah. So you've got to tie it to something that both kind of matches it on a visceral level, but also that everybody can understand, right? Like when you say the bubble in the wallpaper, we all can almost feel it under your fingers immediately, right? What that feels like. Yeah, exactly. But there's nothing rising under that bubble. It's like you, you've just laid this surface on. Yeah, that's super interesting. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about, you were involved in um, this very successful launch of this Zoe app that has collected data from probably more than a million people at this point to help track the symptoms of the COVID-19. We, we made it nearly... 30 minutes without any substantial COVID-19 uh, <laughs> chat. But I, I'm interested in how you communicate something like that, that probably was put together in a matter of days because time is clearly of the essence in these kind of scientific efforts where every day is a, is a doubling or tripling in cases. Yeah. So this was a fascinating project to be involved in. So the, the tracker itself is the COVID-19 tracker that's being run by um, Zoe, who's um, a client of my communications company first create the media and it's been run through king's college london so it's sort of scientific project through that and now they're running with massachusetts general hospital in the u.s stanford university they're rolling out to other countries as well so that it's uh, they have i think two million users every day now in the uk alone so it's, it's just fantastic and even if you're if even if you're well even if you're fine i'd recommend get it download it just check in if, even if you're feeling well that's that's valuable data so the story started with that. So my, my company, First Create the Media, has been working with Zoe for probably nearly a year now. And they initially are a company that was working closely with King's College London. Actually, one of the co-founders is Tim Spector. He's the director of the Twins UK study. So they were taking this massive cohort of thousands and thousands of twins and doing nutritional studies on them. So what happens if you take genetically identical twins and you say, eat the same thing, does your body respond in the same way? Is your microbiome the same? Right. So that was really fascinating to work through that huge data set. They're using machine learning to figure out, like, can you predict nutritional response based on genetics, based on microbiome, based on like some, some basic metabolic uh, and other phenotypic information? It's a super interesting company, super interesting project. So um, up until probably three weeks ago, <laughs> That was the basis that I was working with them, you know, and me and my team were, right. were doing all this lovely content about decision nutrition and understanding the microbiome. And so just as everything started kicking off in the UK, Tim realized that the twin cohort, so it's 7,000 pairs of UK twins. Right. It's an amazing study, isn't it? Absolutely incredible study. They've been, it's been going for nearly 30 years. Thousands of pairs of twins, identical, non-identical. They've got like sibs in there as well. They've got some family data massively genotyped phenotype cohort they've got microbiome studies they've got infection history they've got some immunological profiling incredible incredible cohort and they're all out in the population and tim was like well i mean i guess quite a lot of them are going to get covid aren't they so how can we get them to tell us what's going on in terms of their symptoms because the big challenge is that we don't really know what this disease is like right some people get mild symptoms some people are asymptomatic some people are very very ill why are some people incredibly ill when others aren't? Is it genetic? Is it environment? Is it just exposure? Is it job? You know, whatever is it. And so he was like, well, can we, how do we ask the twins cohort 
And he was like, well, I'm working with Zoe. We've already got these apps that are asking and engaging with the cohorts that we're working with. Can we roll one out for symptom tracking? And then they looked at it and was like, well, that's brilliant for the twins. This could be brilliant for everyone. Right. That's the data the NHS doesn't have either. So not digging into like the phenotype genotype stuff, but just where are people getting ill and how are they experiencing this illness? Are people well? And is someone just getting a snuffle and it's hay fever? Or is someone getting a snuffle and actually that was coronavirus? <laughs> so they rolled that out. In, they built the app in three days. The poor team. I mean, those the developers and the data team, <laughs> I love those guys. And they've been working their socks off. I had to write a press release over the weekend to get multiple stakeholder sign-offs. So that ruined at least one of my weekends. I guess everybody does sign off on things quickly, though. They're not going to take a week to reply to your email. Otherwise, it's going, it's going without them. Yeah, it's, it's been going fast. Um, and they, they turned around ethics and IRB approval like amazingly fast as well, because it's, the twins part is, is part of the scientific study. But at least all the twins are already consented as a cohort. So I think that cohort study, and that, that was the principle of launching it in the US, was rolling it out to the nurses' health study run out of Massachusetts run by Andy Chan out of MGH, because again, it's a big cohort of healthcare workers who are at the front line. Absolutely. Again, genotype, phenotyped, and then running it out through some of the other cohorts. I think there's an Australian twins cohort. And then, you know, and you may as well then make that data publicly available, uh, make the app publicly available and feed the data into the health service. So the data coming from the app from the general public is going into the um, NHS Health Data Research UK. They've established that data pipeline as well so it's just been it's been kind of kind of bonkers but it's also been like we used to have days like this at CRUK when we get like a big headline story and everyone's all hands to the pump and right got to bash out a press release and bash out a blog post and bash out a piece for this and that and kept my mind off like everyone dying I tell you <laughs> absolutely and it must be an amazing feeling you know that three days of everyone kind of pushing pedal to the metal and then to actually, you know, make a material difference, help the NHS make decisions better, help researchers understand. One of the things that we are really interested in and in, in working on a few collaborative projects around is understanding the role that genetics plays in differences in response. And, and the point you made about people on the front line, for example, if there's a genetic biomarker, a genetic risk factor, that means someone who doesn't fit the conventional risk profile of of having a pre-existing condition, being older, smoking, um, but they have a genetic predisposition, then you really need to know that because those people should be, you know, not working directly with patients. And especially if this thing sticks around, we need to understand, you know, what are the risk factors that make this go from a mild case to something more severe. And that was what was so amazing to me about the potential of the twin study in particular is if you have identical and non-identical twins that are recording information about their symptoms and genetics, you have this amazing system that allows you to really understand what is happening here and, and what's going on. Yeah, it's just fantastic. And I, I, I'm very lucky in, in terms of the projects that I'm able to take on, the projects that the company is able to take on is one of our company values is like kind of, you know, understanding um, and integrity. It's like we only really want to work with scientific projects that we really get, that we really understand. Yeah. Also, that people really understand what they're doing and also understand the value of the job that we can do for them. But also integrity. It's like it's you people do spin all kinds of all manner of bullshit. You know, yeah. I've, I've been working as a journalist for a long time. My inbox is all of crap. But like, yeah, you know, I'll kind of 
statement is like, you know, we don't buy bullshit and we don't sell it. So working with companies that are really making a difference and doing really good science, it's like it becomes easy to talk about it rather than like, oh God, how are we going to like spin this or spin, a, spin straw of gold out of straw? The challenge actually, there's been quite a few interesting comms challenges around talking about the app, about like, well, what angle are we going to take? Because the scientific interesting angle is the twin stuff. It's like this will enable us to dissect phenotype and phenotype and that kind of influence what the public wants to know is like is this going to help the nhs is this going to right cure it is this going to make people better what's how's that do i have it do yeah. i have it you know how can me as a, a random person just get this app and do something useful so the, the tension between what stories do you tell and then and this was incredible to watch in real time to see the conspiracy starting about oh it's not safe uh, like they're just stealing your data it's unsecure they've been hacked uh, that was scary. Um, Must have been stressful, yeah. Yeah, it was really super stressful for the team. And they're like, where is this coming from? I'm like, oh, honey, you know, <laughs> I worked for a cancer charity for a long time. Like, I've seen every conspiracy theory that's going. And the way they've got it, the pharma companies have solved it and they're withholding the cure. Oh, God, yeah. You know, you know I'm just rolling around in my huge shill pile of money. Oh, God. <laughs> so, one of the big jobs that we had at CRUK, particularly as social media took off, like, how do we respond to conspiracy theories? What do we do to right. just see what's out there and almost proactively respond? Because like, well, obviously, you're making an app, it's gathering personal health data right up front from press release onwards. You have to say, this is personal data. We're going to protect it like this. Here's how yep. you find out our FAQ about data protection. So people are still like, and at some point, haters are going to hate. Like, at some point conspiracy theorists are there because that's their mindset and that's how they understand the world it's like someone with a religion it's like your framework of understanding the world is that there is conspiracy at work so those people almost like let them have it because that's yeah. how they're coping with the world but for the rest of the people the people who are like well i saw that and i was a bit like well for those kind of people it's like well my auntie sent me this on the family whatsapp group you're like well no here's the faqs it's from a reliable academic source it's backed up by all of this stuff you can ask them questions you can interact with them you can take your data down you can delete it this seems yeah. legit you know and you have to proactively build that especially in something like that that's very fast moving and potentially very risky you have to be really upfront and transparent and almost sit and preempt every single thing that people would slag you off about i mean we spoke about this earlier around people's fears and concerns around how Data is being used, and we put together a blog post, uh, you know, maybe a week, week and a half ago, listing some of the publicly available studies you could join where the data protection policies were explicit and clear. And, and Zoe, I think, was the first one we included there because it said right there on the website, your data is only being used for these purposes. It won't be ever shared in individual, you know, any individual level data. It's all anonymized. But but even if you go to that level, it's ultimately it's a trust building exercise right people if they haven't heard of you or they they don't know what you do you know it's it's understandable maybe to not blindly trust but it does mean that you know one in a thousand people even if you've gone to lengths to explain yourself and, and what your intentions are um you know it just might not be good enough yeah and there's there is this sort of a flip side of that coin that it can go too far uh in that you can be seen seem almost to right. be protesting too much if you keep going on about it and they're like, well, why do you <laughs> yeah. keep going on about it? Like, 
you know, it's like someone who's like, well, I'm going to the gym all the time. It's like, really? Why do you feel the need to tell me this? It's like, that's weird. You can sort of protest too much. So it's just building like this. How are you going yeah. to portray the character of your organization and what you're doing to the public without constantly having to go like, I work out uh, all the time. It should be obvious in, it just should be obvious in the way you behave that you yeah. are behaving with ethics and integrity and you care about people's data because, you know, you mention it in passing. It's obvious where people want to find it. You respond to them. The other thing, particularly on social media, you can get really sucked into like someone on the internet yeah. is wrong and I must correct them. It's like, well, if it's someone on the internet that's probably a bot and has only got like 10 followers, you responding to them is worse than, than not. Yeah. Than just ignoring them. So you've got to take a judgment call on is this criticism valid? Would it help to address it? Is it just something really obvious where it's like, yeah, hi, all our policies are here. Great, you're interested. Or are you going to go to war on the internet? And that that's something I probably wouldn't, yeah, absolutely. wouldn't recommend. So I know we've crashed through our 45-minute um, time limit here, but we're just having such a good conversation. <laughs> we'll keep going. As uh, just a final... <laughs> I've just starved of human company. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah, I, we all are at this point. <laughs> you're the... <laughs> You're not alone in that. So just to close out here, I wonder if you could just give us a picture of what you're focusing on for the next year, two years. I know you've got Rebel Cell coming out. You've got the Genetics Unzip podcast, First Create the Media. You're working with scientists, startup companies. That seems enough to keep you busy. Is there anything else that I've missed? The BBC show? Uh, what else? Oh, God. Yeah. I'm uh, a uh, relentless overachiever, I'm afraid. <laughs> so yeah, so the book's coming out in August and I am, fingers crossed, going to be able to do the planned events i've already had a couple cancelled for august which makes me nervous hopefully we're going to do the launch at the royal institution fingers crossed praying for everything so that's that's going to be very exciting uh, the bbc series ingenious is out now genetics unzipped it's available at geneticsunzipped.com but yeah the thing that probably occupies me most is first create the media so it's just been wonderful we've been going about probably in our new incarnation, about a year. We've launched our new website this week as well. Very excited. I've seen it. It's great. Yeah. It's, it's fancy, isn't it? Like, it costs more than my car, so that's very <laughs> nerve-wracking to really like make that investment and building a team. Um, I'm, a, I'm a boss now. We have a pension scheme, and, and it's making that transition from being a freelance to actually I'm an agency where a company we can take on clients and we can really do amazing things so much more. You know, we've got access to incredible people who are writers, social media, audio people, project management, and actually start working with, you know, we're still small. So we like really like working with small and growing companies, kind of startups and, and uh, seeds and startups and things like that to help them figure out what do you do? How do you talk about it? You know, if you're a founder going out, like how do you construct a great talk that's got a compelling narrative? That makes people want to believe in you and invest in you if you're making your first website like what do you put on it how should you what's your character right. how do you talk what are your messages that's a lot of fun so we're, we're continuing to work with zoe It'll be very interesting to see where the, that company goes actually and we're you know we're always happy to take on clients so if anyone's listening and like thinks that we can uh, we can help them out telling their story i would i would love to hear from you Great. And, and your cat underscore Arnie on Twitter, if I'm correct, K-A-T underscore A-R-N-E-Y. So, um, and I think you've got a link to your website there in the bio yeah. so people can follow you. You're, you're an entertaining tweeter. You've always got um, the, a finger on the pulse of the new and exciting things and not afraid to share your opinion, which is great. Um, I, I like a meme. Uh, yeah. <laughs> 
Well, thanks, Kat. I really appreciate it. It's been a great, uh, great conversation. And I think we should do this again, certainly in August when your book comes out, if not sooner. Absolutely. And we can talk about that. So many stories to tell you about the book. Yeah. (laughs) 